wanted to make one correction in the newsletter before I begin the lesson this morning, and that's concerning the ladies' Bible class. I got ahead of myself. That's not next Friday. That is, um, that's what I put in the newsletter. It would actually be the first Friday in October. So if you'll make a note of that, if you're one of the regular attendees, uh, that would be a good thing to do, because if you're here this upcoming Friday, Daryl, you'll be alone. When the world thinks about sin, and I'm speaking not of the religious world, but I'm just speaking of the world in general, there is some concept or some idea that goes through the mind of the typical person with respect to sin. But generally, it's going to be something that I guess, for lack of a better word, we'll call it big. It's a murder. That's a sin. It's, it's something that has significant consequences, something that has maybe not, not necessarily immediate consequences. There may be immediate imprisonment in terms of, of a murder, but there's still going to be the trial and the sentencing and a lot of things that have to happen before the, the, the final rendering of judgment. But there's this, this idea that the sin is, is something that really has a significant impact on the life of the person who commits it or those who are the object of that sin. And, and that's not an incorrect concept of sin, but it is one that is not consistent with everything that the Bible would teach about that subject. The child of God who has studied the Bible, who has read through the scriptures, has a different concept of, of the word sin. We recognize those big sins, and sometimes our thinking is influenced by the thinking of the world so that there are certain things we say, well, I'll, I'll never do that, but I may dabble in this. And yet, from the perspective of God's Word and God who gave us this Word, that's an incorrect perception, concept, or understanding of sin. Now I say that, all of that, to lead into the lesson this morning, which is going to pertain to sins of attitude and speech. Do you think it's possible to lose your soul because of a sinful attitude? Can an attitude cause a person to lose their soul? Well, you think about the seriousness of the attitude, and that's illustrated in a number of different ways in the Bible, and the best example that immediately comes to mind is the Beatitudes. It's the first part of the Sermon on the Mount where Jesus really gave his disciples certain attitudes which were indispensable to kingdom living. Sins of attitude, however, for most of us, we, we really don't seem to think maybe the way we should about those, and, and as a result of that, we don't address them. Now, the danger with respect to that particular path is that ultimately, a sin of attitude is going to manifest itself in some behavior. May not, but ultimately, it probably will. And another problem with this matter of discounting sins of attitude is that sins of attitude can also affect 
things that we set. And ultimately, if an attitude goes unchecked, it can manifest itself in what we set. Now, I'll ask another question. Do you think that you can lose your soul as the result of sinful speech? Not just what you think, but what you set. And it's not that you're actually engaging in some action that would involve your, your hands or physical harm to somebody else. It's just something that you set. Well, and again, I don't mean to, to go to an extreme here with these particular sins, but I, I do that just to emphasize the importance of our thinking about this. In Galatians, the third chapter and verse 8, you'll notice where Paul writes, but now you also put them all aside. Now he's going to give us a list of sins that we need to put behind us. If you read further in this particular chapter, he, he writes about putting on the new self. And, and one of the sins that he addresses also in verse 9, which is not given here, is, is lying to one another. I'm going to save that for, a, for another lesson. But it's all because you lay aside the old self with its evil practices, verse 9, and verse 10 goes on, you have put on the new self who is being renewed to a true knowledge according to the image of the one who created him. So there's this, there's this change that is to take place. And if the change takes place, then the attitude is going to change. If the change takes place and the attitude changes then we're not going to be engaging in these sins of speech. So this is important. The first thing he lists here is, is anger. Now what's interesting, and I've, I've addressed anger before. I've had standalone lessons on the subject of anger. I've addressed anger in, in the body of sermons. But I don't know that I've ever looked at it the way Paul presents it here in the context of this passage as being something that is to be laid aside or put aside. But the word anger there in that particular verse, if you go back up to verse 6, you'll see the same word, but it's translated wrath. Now, anger and wrath are very similar. And we also see wrath here in verse 8. But in verse 6, the verse is applied to God. For it is because of these things and you have to go back to verse 5 to see what those things are. But he says it's because of these things that the wrath of God will, be, will come upon the sons of disobedience. Now, that's insightful because it tells me that God is capable of anger. I didn't need that verse to tell me that. I, I can find that in other places in the Old Testament about God. I can find that with respect to Jesus, who is God in the flesh. In fact, when Jesus cleansed the temple... He did that because he was angry. They had made God's house a place of business. So there is this righteous indignation which can manifest itself in the form of anger. Anger in and of itself is not a sin. Ephesians 4 and verse 26, Paul wrote, to be angry and yet do not sin. So anger itself is not a sin. But what he's addressing here is an anger that can result in resentfulness and provoca provocation that will manifest itself in an outburst 
of anger. In Galatians chapter 5, Paul writes about the deeds of the flesh, which are evident, and one of those is outburst of anger. In verse 31 of Ephesians chapter 4, the passage that we looked at a moment ago, verse 26, in verse 31 he writes, Let no bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander, or let all bitterness, excuse me, and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away with you from you along with all malice. And then he gives the, the contrast, the, the higher road, be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving each other, just as God in Christ also has forgiven you. Now, here's something that's helpful. I said that the word anger and also the word wrath, and there's almost very little meaning between those two words, it's the same word that's used in reference to God. God has anger. God's wrath will result in judgment and condemnation against sinful mankind. But also, if I think opposite of the way that the world would lead me to think in terms of saying that anger is okay, then I'm going to act a different way because I'm going to be thinking more along the lines of the way God thinks. Be kind-hearted to one another. Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving each other just as God in Christ also has forgiven you. James writes in chapter 1 and verse 20 that the anger of man cannot achieve the righteousness of God. So you, you have to see this anger, the sinful anger, within the context of the anger of God. There is a place for anger, but God is the one who has the right as God to express his wrath, his anger, in the final judgment and whatever he chooses to do. But man's anger, here's the difference. Man's anger cannot achieve the righteousness of God because what God's anger and wrath allows him to do is his prerogative, and it is not mine. So I need to think more deeply about this resentfulness and this provoking of outburst of anger toward others. And I need to see it for what it is. It's a terrible sin. Also, Paul uses the word here in Colossians chapter 3 and verse 8, he uses the word wrath. And as I say, there's not a lot of, a lot of difference between the two, but, but anger can turn into wrath if it is left unchecked. Wrath is anger turning to vengeful rage. Now here you've got to think about a situation. You've got to think about a person. Somebody who has done something to you that they shouldn't have done. I mean, it was terrible what they did to you. It was terrible what they said to you. The consequences continue to affect your life. And that's what's causing the anger within you. That's what's building up wrath in you that has the potential to result in you taking vengeance in rage. So angry that you can't, they often say it, you can't see straight. You know, that's one thing about anger, and I, I've, 
I have this sometimes, and I know, thinking about sports, I remember youth, youth sports when um, years ago when I knew this particular father who admitted he had an anger problem. And his son played, and I would see him occasionally, and I appreciated this. He'd get up and walk out of the game. And he would tell me, I, I'm, I'm about to explode. I can't stay. I can't continue to be in here. Well, again, you got an anger issue you need to address, but I fully respected the fact that he knew it, he acknowledged it, and he was going to remove himself from the situation. We can become so angry that we just start shaking. You ever feel that? Well, that's, that's the wrath. That's wrath coming upon you. You know, that's, that's the wrath of God when he, in his own anger at the end of time, brings to judgment those who have repeatedly refused to acknowledge him as God, who have repeatedly refused to obey the gospel, having been given opportunity after opportunity after opportunity to be forgiven of sins, after he sacrificed his son on the cross, God has the right to take vengeance. But I don't. Romans chapter 12 and verse 17. Never pay back evil for evil to anyone. Two words here that need to get your attention. One is never. There is no place in a child of God's life to take things into his own hands. Never pay back evil for evil. The other word is anyone. You know, maybe there are some people out there that we just we like to put them in the category that says that, that nothing that I am as a Christian applies to them. I can be to them whatever I want to be to them because of who they are. What does the Bible teach that? Never. Respect what is right in the sight of all men, if possible, so far as it depends on you to be at peace with all men. And those are significant statements. They're contextually significant. But then verse 19, never take your own revenge. And that's where wrath will take you. Beloved, but leave room for the wrath of God, for it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. God's going to take care of it. I don't know that I should gloat in that. I don't know that I should take delight in that. I think what I should take in that is the understanding that, that this is not my place. It's not my position. And this emotion that I'm experiencing is rooted and grounded in the fact that I am not putting trust in God to do his job. But if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him a drink. For in so doing, you will heat burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. And as we see so often in the scriptures this is taking it to the next level not only is God taking away my being able to in anger express my wrath God has told me you got to be good to this person you got to treat this person as if they never did anything to you now whoever did anything closely resembling that? I hope everybody here can answer that question. 
First Peter chapter 3, Peter is writing about suffering for Christ. And in verse 8 in First Peter, he writes about our suffering as Christians and how we should be willing to suffer as did Jesus. But here he concludes this section, 1 Peter chapter 3 and verse 8, by stating to sum up, all of you be harmonious, sympathetic, brotherly, kind-hearted, and humble in spirit, not returning evil for evil or insult for insult, but giving a blessing instead. Because what, that's what Jesus did. He's the one who was mistreated. He is the one who was reviled. He is the one who was spat upon, who had every right and every reason to take vengeance, but he didn't. I'm to live like him, and I am to give a blessing. Verse, the verse 9 continues, for you recall for the very purpose that you might inherit a blessing. If I'm a Christian destined to inherit a blessing, then as a Christian I should be willing to give a blessing. Now here's a better life. Here's a better life. For the one who desires life to love and see good days must keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. Sins of attitude and speech. He must turn away from evil and do good. Don't pay back evil for evil. Turn away from it, do good. He must seek peace, be at peace with all men, and he must pursue it for the eyes of the Lord are toward the righteous. That's the description of the righteous man. His ears attend to their prayer, but the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. Now let's go back to Jesus' example. Chapter 2, who committed, verse 22, who committed no sin, nor was any deceit found in his mouth. And while being reviled, he did not revile in return. While suffering, he uttered no threats, but he kept entrusting himself to him who judges righteously. You see the, you see the, the point about trust that I made earlier? If, if you're not controlling your anger and your wrath, then you're not giving place to God's wrath and you're not trusting Him to make good on His promise. He will punish the evil doer. The third thing we see here is this sin of malice. Now this, I do see a progression here. I become angry. Well, I can be angry and not sin. Or I can continue and let that anger, that resentfulness, that, that willingness to be provoked turn into vengeful rage. Well, I don't want to go to jail. So I'm not going to kill the person. Hmm. Hmm. What can I do? I don't want to do good. I don't want to, they didn't do good to me. So what can I do that's not good? That's evil intent. That's evil intent aimed at a person. That's malice. Can you lose your soul? Well, that's sin. Well, it's, it's, it's in the list. In Matthew chapter 5, here is where we try to turn the table. How do we respond? How do I overcome this anger, this wrath, this malice? Well, here's a good place to start. Matthew chapter 5, you've heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. Well, nobody ever said that. Somebody said it, but it wasn't in the Bible. But I say to you to love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you 
so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. Again, if you want to be like God, be like God. Be like the God who created all men in his image. Recognize that. He causes his son to rise on the evil and the good. He sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. And sunshine's not just for you. That rain's not just for you. That's for the, ev- the most evil person who ever lived. What is God teaching us? I'm the one. I'm the one who has the right. I'm, in, I'm God, not you. Stop trying to be me. I'm God. You, you, me, God. <laughs> For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? Don't we just love to do what's easy? Oh, we're experts at that. Give me a to-do list. Put 50 things on my to-do list. Things that I like to do. Things that are easy to do. And buddy, I'll knock it out in a heartbeat. Well, that's, that's what the Gentiles do. It's, it's, it's easy. If you greet only, only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same. Therefore, you are to be perfect or mature as your heavenly Father is perfect. I need to see people as objects of God's love and not objects of my anger, my wrath, my malice. And I need to get past this evil intent that seems to keep rearing its ugly head in my life and seek what is better for them. Luke chapter 23, what did Jesus say to God on the cross? Father, forgive them for they do not know what they are doing. Wow, what, a, what an example. There's the one. There's the one who set the standard. He set the bar. He set it high. But he's the one who is to, to guide my thinking when it comes to the object of my anger, when it comes to the object of my wrath, I need to be like him. I think I said I was a disciple at some point in the past, which means I'm a follower. I'm an imitator. So I need to learn to be like him. 1 Peter chapter 4 and verse 19, again in reference to Jesus, as our example... There, those also who suffer according to the will of God shall entrust their souls to a faithful creator in doing what is right. Do you trust God to be just? Do you trust God to punish the sinner? Do you trust God on the day of judgment in, in the event of those who refuse to obey, those who refuse to repent? Do you trust God to do his job? If you do, then you'll leave it alone and you'll just take the higher road every time. And then the last point here, and we'll close with this, is slander and abusive speech. Put them all aside. Anger, wrath, malice, slander and abusive speech from your mouth. Now, slander is blasphemy. That's speaking against. Typically, we think of blasphemy as blasphemy against God. Speaking against God. But the word can be applied as equally to what we say about others as it can be what we would say against God. In Luke chapter 6, we'll take a moment to look at another statement that was made by Jesus that really pierces to the heart. 
Jesus said in Luke chapter 6 and verse 45, the good man out of the good treasure of his heart brings forth what is good, and the evil man out of the evil treasure brings forth what is evil. For his mouth speaks from that which fills his heart. You ever told somebody your, your actions speak louder than your words? Well, what people do is the result of what's in their heart, but what they say is also a result of what is in their heart. And, and this speaking against other people, I do that because I fail to acknowledge the sin that is in my heart. And you know, I can't do enough good to erase that, can I? I mean, I can go out here and I can engage in good deeds and, and I, I, can, I can just uh, serve others and, and, and I can preach or I can teach. But if that sin is in my heart, I need to deal with it. I need to address it. In James chapter 3, when James was writing about the abuse of the tongue, he stated in James 3 and verse 7, Every species of beast and birds, of reptiles and creatures of the sea is tamed and has been tamed by the human race, but no one can tame the tongue. You can't ever let go of this one. It is a restless evil, and it's full of deadly poison. With it, we bless our Lord and Father, and with it, we curse men who have been made in the likeness of God. From the same mouth come both blessing and cursing. My brethren, these things ought not to be this way. Does a fountain send out from the same opening both fresh and bitter water? Can a fig tree, my brethren, produce olives or a vine produce figs? You see, nature teaches us certain principles that we should be able to apply to the spiritual realm, such as you can't bless God and then create the one who was created in God's image, the one who was the object of God's love and the sending of his son and the sacrifice of his son on the cross. You just can't do that. It's not consistent. And while we're trying to figure all of that out, while we're trying to reason through all of that, maybe we should just look at Ephesians 4 and verse 29. Let no unwholesome word proceed from your mouth, but only such a word as is good for edification, according to the need of the moment, so that it will give grace to those who hear. That's a good, that's a good pattern to follow. And that'll help me overcome slander and abusive speech. I hope these thoughts have helped you. Sins of attitude and sins of speech are sins. I need to deal with it. You need to deal with it. If you're here today and you've never obeyed the gospel, 